right. Well, gather up your zombie fly girls and toss back a pint or two at the pub because you're going to need it to make it through at least one of the movies we're talking about today. It's Film Shake, the 90s movies podcast. I'm Jordan. And this is Nick. And today we're at episode 43, a special patron request from patrons Neil and Jessica. They've asked us to cover 1997's The Matchmaker, starring Janine Graffalavava. And uh, it's a it's a wee little gem of a movie, eh, Nick? <laughs> a wee gem indeed. And you know what? I don't think they planned this, but it worked out perfectly to where we can continue. Our tradition started last year of doing a St. Patrick's Day episode. Dublin is our fifth most listened to city, or I don't know how to say that right, but you know what? Of all the cities that exist in the world, Dublin is number five on the list of cities that like to listen to Film Shake. Thank you, Dublin. So thank you. Yes. And you know what? I like to put out there that I'm Irish any single chance that I can get, so why not do it on this podcast? Why not do it, Jordan? Yeah. Yes, if there was a dead horse to beat on this podcast, it would be that you have Irish ancestors. That's right. Yes. So, as always, we have to come back first with the Fallen Warrior review. And as always, I lost trivia last time, so I am the one reviewing a terrible movie that I was punished w- with. And that would be, well, Nick, wh- what did you punish me with? And I'll give you a little moment here to, again, bask in the glory of your Irish ancestors that are so well represented in this fifth installment <laughs> of a Leprechaun movie franchise. That's right. So last year for St. Patrick's Day, we were doing Patriot Games, which is a pretty serious film. You know, there's not a lot of laughs to be had. And I thought, you know what? Why did Martin Glenn sail from Galway, Ireland to New Orleans, Louisiana, if not to have his great-great-grandson do a podcast episode focused on Leprechaun in space? And now I'm thinking, like, how could I make him even more proud? Like, how could I make him dance in his grave in Glenn, Louisiana? We obviously honored him very well in the fact that we covered Leprechaun in space, so... The logical conclusion would be the next movie of the franchise, right? See, you said the word conclusion there as if we're not going to cover another Leprechaun movie every year <laughs> after this until we run out, which will be never. Right, because I'm, I'm sure they'll just keep making them as we make this podcast, right? They've, they've got to be still releasing these like straight to video. As long as Warwick Davis needs a buck, I feel like they'll make these films. You want to put all exactly. that makeup on again? Come on, buddy. Let's do another <laughs> one. How about Leprechaun Goes to the Zoo? They're just <laughs> they're just at his trailer, like, w- waving money, and he's like, ah, damn it, all right. <laughs> I'll do it. Leprechaun buys a Harley. Right. Leprechaun on a yacht. Dude, <laughs> you know, I would love it if he got, like, on an Instagram influencer yacht and just murdered everyone while <laughs> rhyming about influencers. That would be amazing. <laughs> if that's not the next movie, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah, it's very topical on brand. So, Jordan, let me ask you. How'd you feel watching this cinematic gym? Did you feel like, God, I love Nick. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate you, buddy. What a great friend. So we should say that, yes, the, the movie I was punished with was Leprechaun 5, a.k.a. Leprechaun in the Hood. And we've got Ice-T, of course. Uh, not the drink, but the man, Ice-T. And I watched this. I drug my wife into watching this with me. And so we geared up with some good old Jameson and Irish coffee, which I'm still contemplating how Irish coffee makes sense. It's a very tasty drink, but coffee wakes me up 
whiskey puts me to sleep as I discovered the other night when I when I had some just by itself and fell asleep in the chair. But yes, uh, tasty drink doesn't quite make practical sense, but we enjoyed the hell out of it. And we enjoyed this uh, movie to a degree, laughing at it mostly because of its ridiculousness. So you have iced tea, thinking in the 70s most likely, because uh, it opens up at least in the 70s. He's got this giant afro there. They discover the leprechaun like in this abandoned warehouse kind of place. And he keeps pulling things out of his afro, like ropes or, I don't know, bar, you know, some some sort of contraptions out of his afro to fight the leprechaun. So that was that was pretty great. I also enjoyed the positive message of of the hip hoppers in this movie with Postmaster P who's bringing the positive message uh, through his rap stylings. Of course, you've got to have, you know, your main star as the rapper be like a positive rapper. But then Ice-T, he's like, I love the scene where he's telling him like, you got to you got to get rid of all that positive shit, man, because, you know, you need to be like blasting people with uzis and smacking your bitch up and stuff like that it's like and you should mention his name in this movie he's a pimp to begin with he's got a sweet pimp costume and ice t famously was a pimp in real life before he was famous actually i think he was partially famous whenever he became a pimp he just used that to his advantage i didn't know that but his character's name in this film is mac daddy onassis because he owns asses <laughs> exactly. which they which they spell out for you very yes. nicely so yeah then we discover the the leprechaun he's taken him back to his crib and uh it has this magical gold necklace around it that keeps it frozen calcified and unable to wreak havoc like he normally does uh so the necklace is removed in this abandoned warehouse where they find him through like a series of mishaps ice tea like i think stumbles over something and the necklace flies in the air and then it just like randomly magically falls down onto the leprechaun and freezes him again and ice tea now has his magical flute which gives him anything that he wishes and i guess whenever it's played strangely just makes people like stare off into space for 20 seconds which the movie doesn't cut away from you just have the main characters playing the flute and then everybody around them like blinking for five minutes. <laughs> so we have then, of course, the these three main uh, aspiring rappers who are trying to get on Ice-T's label, but he's, he ain't having it with all that positive shit. So he throws them out and they come back to rob him because they have the moral high ground here of like, you know, wanting to preach the good news and, uh, you know, say the the positive things in their raps, but they're going to rob this guy and try and like scheme and tell people that they have Jimi Hendrix's guitar <laughs> signed by him. But anyway, that's all, you know, here or there. They basically rob Ice-T and then in the process set the leprechaun free, who then wreaks havoc on this town or not town, but Los Angeles. It's it's a bi- it's bigger than a town, <laughs> you know, obviously. This little town you might have heard of. You might have heard of this place called L.A. Little coastal village, quaint little village <laughs> by the sea. Quaint little village. So he proceeds to murder all the people we've been introduced to. The boys have the magic flute, so then they are able to kind of aspire higher to be better at their rapping, get equipment, and they're gonna. There's something about some sort of Las Vegas show that they're or audition they're gonna win or something i don't know but anyway the leprechaun's <laughs> killing people and he's got a favorite part of this movie and i love this term and you know god bless the screenwriter for this unless it was just 
ad-libbed by Warwick Davis in one of his sweet rhymes. But he's got zombie fly girls <laughs> at his beck and call who we don't quite understand until the end of the movie how they came about because they just kind of appear suddenly because the editing in this movie is totally whack. So we have the first zombie fly girl attacks the pawn shop owner and then the leprechaun, he appears in some dark enclosed place where he's laughing and, you know, enjoying the murder of this pawn shop owner. It's later revealed that that scene is actually when he was locked in a safe and he's shown there at that point. But somehow they just took a scene from that moment that was actually later in the chronology of the film and just inserted it while the first zombie fly girl <laughs> kills the pawn shop owner. That makes no sense because this movie makes no sense. And I love how it's not until the very end that we show him turning the girls into the zombie slaves. Why did you just put that earlier in the movie to explain where all the zombie fly girls come from? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you show him in a dark safe when he wasn't in a dark safe yet? But you don't need to answer any of these questions because it's Leprechaun 5. My favorite part about all of that is that whenever the good guys, quote unquote good guys, because, you know, they're, they're kind of morally ambiguous by the end of the movie, using this magical flute to control people's minds and to love in their music. But they're trying to find out what's going on with this Leprechaun, how they can hunt him down and kill him and get his get the flute back from him because you know he took the flute back after murdering one of the three and someone describes where he is like his headquarters and tells them basically like these women go in but they don't go out (laughs) just if it is i guess all these women go in and then the leprechaun has sex with them and then kills them and there's a point where like some of the fly girls come in or maybe this is the point where, because I forgot how much drag is involved in this movie. I think that yeah. they're, at least 50% of the time there's someone on screen, they're in drag. And half of the time that's the main characters. And some right. of the wacky, hilarious hijinks in this film. Right, but, because they they go to, like, they seek shelter in a, a guy's apartment who's in drag. And then the, the leprechaun apparently maybe has sex with him and and kills him via sex. I don't I'm not sure what's happening in that bedroom. The leprechaun enjoyed it. That's all I know. And he also found the encounter hysterical. Also, can you explain or since we're in that scene, they hide out from the leprechaun in the bathroom like all three of the guys realize the leprechaun's in the apartment and that he's killed this drag queen. And so they all run into the bathroom and I love how one of the rappers, I guess he's like the the DJ, the beat, the mix master. He's like supposedly really smart and knows a lot about chemicals just randomly, like just to add something to his character. And so he's he comes up with this concoction where they have like a, I guess, a heating blanket that they're going to plug into the wall and put some sort of jelly on that it'll catch on fire whenever they turn on the light switch. Like, how is it that the light switch is making this heating pad like explode into flames and catch the leprechaun on fire because this movie is amazing jordan i didn't even think you'd have to ask oh okay (laughs) so there is no actual explanation (laughs) of how that happens i'm right in assuming that's just like random crap that they made up on the spot when they're filming this movie oh you know what though i did that thing where I, i was gonna say like this part's really awesome but then i was like wait let me set this part up and then i never get to the actual part that i thought was awesome and oh right the, the drag at the end well the part that i thought was awesome is that the leprechaun speaks in a rhyme the entire movie i think there's only one moment where he says a phrase that does not rhyme like everything has to rhyme right 
And I think my right. favorite thing it's was... Leprechaun. That's right. And I think it's when the hero came and dragged to try to seduce the leprechaun and then kill him. Whenever yes. uh, he was like, All the other men's wings will look silly when I introduce you to a club named Billy. Of course, oh, right, the club right, named Billy right. being apparently his penis, even though he's like two feet tall, is like a Billy yeah. club. Yes. Right. He's got a Billy club of a wing. You know, since they like to over explain certain things and not explain others, I really thought he was going to bust out of the ride and be like, it's because my penis is rather large and shaped like a Billy club. And I'm going to have sex with you. And then I'm going to beat you to death with it. I guess maybe that's what he does after he, I don't know. I, I probably shouldn't put that enough thought into this movie to come to any type of conclusions. This movie's ridiculous, man. This is a movie where the leprechaun says, look at all these glittering goods. I've got more loot than Tiger Woods. So that's, that's that's just one of many rhymes you can enjoy if you watch this movie. I think that was his opening rhyme. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> After they use, I think, stock footage from like the first <laughs> Leprechaun movie. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. Which can't be the only stock footage in this movie. You want to know my favorite part of this movie, actually? That would be the dream sequence with the blind mother feeding the Leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> because it had to be done intentionally like funny on purpose right but it dives into like some christopher nolan level stuff here man where uh you know it's a dream within a dream you've got postmaster p he's dreaming that the leprechaun goes to visit his blind mother and the mother just starts to like you know randomly (laughs) feed the leprechaun but she's blind so she's like poking him on the side of the face and he's trying to like go after this bite of cereal but she keeps moving it around but then she stabs him in the eyeball, and the eyeball is just hanging out on the fork. But then Postmaster P wakes up from the dream. He's like, oh, it's just a dream. But then there's a knock on the door, and it's like one of his dead buddies. And then he wakes up again, and I'm pretty sure he wakes up like three or four more times. Like <laughs> This is the inception of Inception right here. This is where Christopher Nolan got his ideas from Leprechaun 5. Of course. You know, and I, I just thought that really happened. I just took it for granted that at some point, everything that was happening right. in the dream was really happening in the movie. Right. Because you know how sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, oh, this is obviously a dream sequence and the character's going to wake up from this. But no, the you know, you would just have a random scene where the leprechaun, for no good reason, just shows up at his mother's house to eat cereal because he also <laughs> just randomly shows up like at the Korean guy's grocery store to kill him and like pickle him in jars. So it's like, wait, why are you here? Are you supposed to be after your flute? No, I'm just going to murder these people while I'm at it. I just want to say for every single person who watched 1997's The Matchmaker and thought, I really want to listen to a podcast about that movie. And this is the only one I can find. I hope it's good. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, this is a perfect match with The Matchmaker. You know, after watching both movies, can you imagine Warwick Davis as The Matchmaker in the small little town of Brennan <laughs> Like, it would be perfect. No lie, I did think that. And then you can have Milo O'Shea as the Leprechaun in Leprechaun in the Hood. It would be perfect. For sure. And another thing I was thinking was, like, the person who directed this movie, Rob Spira, I mean, he doesn't even have, like, an IMDb not IMDb, he doesn't even have like a Wikipedia credit. And I started thinking about previous movies we watched. Like, you know, I thought about Ice-T being in Surviving the Game, and then I thought about Demon Knight, which has some similar tones to this movie. And I thought, damn, if Ernest R. Dickerson had directed this, I feel like 
the movie would have been a little more legit. Like, it's really fun to watch because it's just so stupid and ridiculous. But I feel like maybe there there could have been, like, trashy action thrills in here, you know? If Dickerson yeah. had made it instead. I'm kind of peeved about that. I don't even know if they offer this to him. You know, I don't know if he saw this script and was like, oh, dear God. God <laughs> save sure. the man who directs this movie. This looks like crap. But there's, like, another universe, and there has to be where Ernest R. Dickerson directs leprechaun in the hood there has to be and it's like not an incredible film but i don't know a a fun piece of action trash instead of just like a ridiculous i don't know i mean would you still just call this trash what would you even classify this as i don't even know what's going on at this point mostly incompetent (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's some laughs in here for sure but like i said man it, it was just from scene to scene is kind of hard to even understand like why they put the movie together the way they did it's just like wait what is happening now why is the leprechaun there wait that was supposed to happen earlier like why didn't they edit this together better (laughs) not quite sure what's happening well it's such a cheat too right because he's a magical leprechaun so literally every single time you're like wait what how did this happen well he's magic he can just appear where he wants yeah why is he in the hood in the first place like, why is he in right. this underground hood crypt? Nobody knows. Who cares? He's a leprechaun, so he just is. Just like why he was in space. Unless we forget, I called the hood a small town earlier. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> everybody knows everybody. Right. It's the t- it's a small town. It's the hood, you know? Just like with space, you know? That's how we got there. Everyone just knows everybody. It doesn't matter what planet you're from. Everybody knows the leprechaun. Right. And it doesn't matter that they killed him in the last movie in space. He just, you know, <laughs> somehow ended up in that warehouse in the beginning with Ice-T and his giant afro. One thing of note with this one that I did enjoy is that I think this is the only one where the leprechaun wins at the end. Right. Yeah, They. I did see that bit of trivia, and so... And even well, even that was kind of confusing and I wasn't quite sure what to make of the ending because like I said, in the beginning the magical nex- necklace flies up in the air and just randomly lands back on that leprechaun and freezes him for ice tea to use for his nefarious purposes, right? So at the end we have Postmaster P in drag, our main hero facing off against the leprechaun, and somehow or another the l- magic necklace flies up in the air once more and you see it and then you see it fall and then you hear the leprechaun like ah like scream and it cuts to black so you just assume okay the it, the same thing happened again right but no in the next scene we've got postmaster p who was always in white clothes the whole movie he's now dressed in fully black he's got sunglasses on and he's doing his rap in on a stage and he's like all suave and then he pulls down his sunglasses and he's got the green eyes just like the zombie fly girls right so i guess he's under the leprechaun's control now because then the leprechaun shows up at the very end and he's rapping and he's turning all the girls into the zombies which is this is the scene they actually filmed for earlier in the movie but for some reason left for the end and they roll the credits over it that's my favorite part right Right. So it it felt like it should have been like, okay, Postmaster P shows us he's got green eyes. Oh, wait, you know, we faked you out. He's actually under control. Cut to black. And then maybe like mid credits, we get this goofy scene with the leprechaun dancing with the girls. 
But no, they just decided to stick it in right there. Wait, Jordan dancing with the girls. He's got a whole song. He's got a whole song with unique lyrics describing everything about him and what's happened in the movie. That's amazing. And I love the idea that Postmaster P is basically his familiar now. And he's like, oh, Postmaster P, go get me some more women. And then Postmaster P goes, I was like, hey, you, you want to get with this leprechaun? Come on now. Come on now. <laughs> and then, you know, he's just got this dance hall full of women now, all just dancing with the leprechaun, just wanting to jam with him. Which, you know, his, like you said, the lyrics that sum up this movie and they actually are only like a few words that actually could sum up this movie, which is lep in the hood can do no good. And you've got the zombie girls just singing that over and over and over again while they're shaking their things. And I just, I don't know, I just had to wince a little bit for these actors. You know, it's like, we have stooped this low to make this movie and say these lines this many times. Oh, that rhymed. Nice job. I think maybe you were becoming the leprechaun. Oh no, oh no, we better move on. That's right. Let's talk about 1997's The Matchmaker. I said the matchmaker, but really I should be like the matchmaker. Yeah, I feel like you know how you have like the trailer guy's voice. There's one trailer guy who's like the matchmaker, <laughs> but then you have the sweet, whimsical, romantic comedy trailer guys like, and they were off to an adventure <laughs> in Ireland for the matchmaker and he's got to have like a you know some sort of british or irish accent there right maybe not irish because you know that's too specific it's it's gonna be trailer guy with british accent with whimsical voice not the action trailer guy all that to say yes you you should have said the matchmaker the matchmaker like what if you combine the really throaty cigarette smoky guy voice but like he with a british accent it could work Hey, you know what? Have you ever even heard of 1997's The Matchmaker <laughs> before this was requested to us? No, no, honestly, you know, first of all, we could not even find this movie anywhere streaming. It's nowhere online that I could really hunt down, but we were able to hunt it down at the public library. Thankfully, they had copies of it, you know, and it's on one of these janky old DVDs that has the full screen on one side and the widescreen on the other. Nick, which version of this movie did you watch? Did you go with the widescreen? Well, you know me. I watched this movie more than once, and I watched both versions. Oh, nice. And nice. It's like I have multiple things to say about that. The first one is, obviously, Neil and Jess... They requested that we cover this as patrons, so this movie must be important to them. And I have a feeling they're probably not the only people out there. I'm sure they want a better transfer of this movie. But even if you don't share that opinion and you just are a fan of cinema in general, this was a major release movie with some very notable names in it and some obvious effort put into the film. You should be able to watch it outside of a disc that 
can only show it in a postage stamp size because this right. movie, if you watch it in widescreen, it does that classic thing where it doesn't just have the bars on top. It's like a little tiny letter envelope in the middle of your TV showing the movie. It's honestly, right. it's pathetic. It's an embarrassment that that's where we are, where so many movies from this period, if they haven't gotten like a good Blu-ray release or they somehow missed out on streaming, it's like they don't exist. And this movie right. should exist. I mean, we'll talk about what our opinions are on it, like whether it's great or just okay or not just okay. But it has a right to exist, Jordan. And I thought that was ridiculous. I actually preferred the cropped version. I don't, which version did you watch? You know, I'm a purist. Usually when it comes to widescreen, I hate full screen, usually just on principle because part of the movie is cut off. I want to see everything they put up there. But the, yeah, the aspect ratio of this was so weird to where the black bars on top and bottom are like 10 feet tall and the movie itself is like an inch tall. So it was one of the few times where I was really tempted to go and watch the cropped version, but I tried a little bit and it was like people's heads were cut off in half, you know, on the edge of the screen. I was like, I can't do it, man. I'm just going to watch this like really sitting really close to the TV, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure that's probably what killed this movie on home video sales, man. It's just like, you can't watch this. Like nobody wants to watch the postage stamp of a movie on their TV. So I agree. It, it definitely needs a better release. Yeah, man, it's crazy. I see what you're saying with the frame. And, you know, I mean, I used to get when I was in Columbia House, I get the widescreen VHS tapes. So I'm a purist there, too, to a point. But I'd watch this for the second time. And I also think, which we'll get into later, this movie plays better on second watch. But mm -hmm. just the fact that it was larger and that I could actually kind of make out people's facial expressions this time, that right. really helped a lot. You know, you do mm. lose what's on the side of the frame. But. I enjoyed Janine Garofalo's head being like six inches tall instead of like two inches tall. So right. I, I feel like that helped my enjoyment of the movie more. So sad to say the pan and scan side of the DVD, I feel like is the definitive version of the matchmaker uh, that you can currently watch. You could see all of Janine uh teeth when she smiled <laughs> in the pan and scan. So That's right. Let's scan over her mouth because it <laughs> fills up the whole screen. No, <laughs> I love Janine, and um, we'll get into that too. But I also have to say that the DVD was lacking subtitles. So about the first 20 minutes, we're scrambling to try and figure out how to turn on the closed captions on our DVD player to make sure that we can understand what's happening because really could not. Um, but once we got that going, it was it was a lot smoother. And I agree. We went back and rewatched the beginning uh, later the next day with the closed captioning on and, and it proved it a, a whole lot because yeah, to a degree because all right let's get into the plot first of all we have Janine Garofalo she's playing the aide to a senator in Boston who is up for re-election he's apparently down in the polls and his right-hand man played by Dennis Leary just classic Dennis Leary like yelling the f-word every five seconds until his into his 90s brick cell phone. That was pretty great. So we have her playing his top aide. She's called into his office in the very beginning and asked, do you want to go to Ireland? And she says no. And they're like, no, I think the answer we're looking for is yes. And you're going to go there to chase the senator's destiny. So she's sent off to Ireland. 
at this point, I'm 20, 30 minutes into the movie. I still had no idea why the hell she was going to Ireland. And I want to know, was that to build suspense or mystery? I just felt like it was kind of a poor setup to begin with. I, you know, I thought maybe we missed something with the closed captions. But no, we went back, rewatched it, and it's still pretty opaque as far as why she's going there in the beginning. But, you know, later down the line, they definitely spell it out and you know she's there to discover his irish ancestors and try to drum up some family members that the senator can come and have a quick film shoot with to show all his boston irish voters back home that you know he's a man of the people so he can get his election won so what did you make of the opening of the movie nick so this is one of those movies that just starts Especially right. with this subpar DVD. You put it in, and then Janine Garofalo is in an office talking to someone. Like, there's no fanfare. It's like, here you go. We're in this movie now. And I would say, not would say, I will say right now. I am saying right now. Man, the English <laughs> language is a crazy thing. It's used well in certain scenes in this movie, but badly by me right now. To say the sound in this movie on the transfer is as bad as the picture it is muffled. It is not high quality. I missed a lot of dialogue the first time, too. I did not think to just turn on my general captions, so it was hard to catch things, especially when you've got people who purposely have very thick accents with right. no subtitles, right, for, for character for the film. But when I watched it the second time, I did put headphones on, and I could understand everything, and it was still not great sound quality, but it was better. But, I mean, I'm with you. Even watching it twice... I could get the character of everything more and understood what was going on, but they just they just jump you right in. It almost feels like, you know, when she gets to Ireland, there's a, a great scene where she's on the bus. I, I say a great scene, but it's just kind of a fun scene where she's on the bus and they're playing the Shane McGowan song, you know, from the pose. And it, it's just kind of this wacky, goofy bus ride. And she's definitely this fish out of water, right? And someone's people, everyone's trying to get her to smile. And she's just like, this little woman with a frown on her face, like you said, wearing like a lot of jackets and it's, it's just like setting the character for the film. And it's almost like the pre-credit sequence you would generally get in another film, but it's like four minutes into the film after she's already gotten to Ireland. And you're like, wait, why is she here again? Which I understand now after watching the film a couple times, but it's definitely like slightly jarring. Yes. Yes. And I would say this movie is very nineties for some of that stuff that you just mentioned, it's pretty standard on the rom-com vibe, you know, overall in the formula. And at parts, it's kind of mundane, especially the early office stuff. And then, you know, her riding on the bus and everything. But then it does something just kind of crazy and outrageous all of a sudden. And that's very 90s and very 90s rom-com specifically for me, where you know, she's taking the bus ride. Like you said, everyone's, it's kind of goofy. It's overcrowded. And, you know, they're telling her to smile because she looks all sullen. But all of a sudden, I don't remember exactly what happened, but the bus just goes careening down a slope and one of the tour guides like flies out of the bus and breaks his <laughs> leg. And then they nearly crash the bus like into a body of water. And that was pretty awesome. And they kind of do that throughout this movie where it's, kind of low-key and it's typical and then all of a sudden you have most of the humor coming from like the bit players and the smaller characters on the side just kind of randomly inserted and it's hilarious and it's just kind of outrageous and wacky and that 
very 90s rom-com way. And that kind of sold this movie for me. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I agree. I love that. And just the general kind of character that the film has, really like the setting and all the side characters and the music definitely carries this film for me. Because I agree, the rom-com stuff is pretty standard and... I have some questions for you later when we get into some of the romantic details of this movie. But one thing I did notice the second time is why the bus crashed. And, of course, the bus driver, he fancies Janine Garofalo. He's very lovesick in general. He just wants somebody to love him. So he has a crush on her for the first half of the movie or so before he kind of starts trying his chances with other women. But that's what happened. He kept looking back at her, and he didn't notice the sign for the matchmaking festival, which is going on in this area of Ireland that they're in, which, Jordan, this is perfect. This is perfect. I did not know this until I watched it, and as soon as I saw the landscape, I said, that's Galway. Jordan, Galway is where Martin Glenn, my great-great-grandfather, sailed from to get right. to Louisiana. That's where. So this film is where my people are from, Jordan. So I should go there instead of this McGlory guy looking for his family, which, spoiler alert, he's actually hungarian he's not actually irish he has no irish ancestors but you know i could go find the glens there this movie could have been about me so this was shot in galway it was uh oh wow that's awesome it was yeah it was shot in roundstone uh in galway you mentioned the bus driver and his fascination with janine and i love that aspect I love his little side character that just pops up in and out and he keeps saying, I'm going to die a virgin. And he, he, you know, he's trying to get with her throughout the film. And, you know, by the end, she's kind of sweet to him, but, you know, it's not entertaining any romantic, I guess, pursuits from him. I love the little detail that later we meet Sean, her love interest, and we'll get into him. But he discovers the bus driver in a tanning bed. Trying to commit suicide via tanning bed because he's gonna die a virgin. Nobody will have sex with him. He's just, you know, lovesick and just kind of at the end of his rope or at the end of his bed, so to speak. But I love that little detail that he's going to try and kill himself via a tanning bed, which is owned by the matchmaker of the town because that's like, I guess, his, I don't know, little extra. Uh, something that he throws in with matchmaking people he helps he gives them a tan as well yeah you know because irish people are very pale right so it applies perfectly uh to yeah because he's you know he's gonna hook up all these pale irish people with city girl janine Garofalo. they're all like at her heels when they discover you know this this big city american is in town so what did you think of uh, Garofalo in in her role in her quick-witted but yet cynical intelligent self as always well i have a lot to say about her and i should say to the matchmaker who's the the title character of this film it's not called janine in ireland it's called the matchmaker which is kind of this town's claim to fame as people come from all over to get made into a match by him which is what's going on when janine gets there and she's janine garofalo i mean it's it's just her i i don't know if i've ever seen anything where she acted differently than she acts in this film I mean, right. I, I, I dug her in the 90s. I dug her persona. I will say, and I keep saying I will say, I should just say <laughs> stuff, man. Just Why don't say I it, just Nick. say it? Why just don't... get it out. Don't be shy in front of the Dubliners. <laughs> Come on. That's right. I think when we were doing the Demon Knight episode, we were talking about the kind of stereotypical 90s woman that like the media would push to us, right? Which is basically right. like Pamela Anderson type, bleach blonde with a tan and like huge fake breasts right 
But I, right. I feel like myself going through the 90s, you know, I started that decade as an eight-year-old and I ended it as an 18-year-old. I feel like by this point in the late 90s, my taste had kind of shifted from that kind of Pam Anderson type woman early in puberty to, you know, this more sophisticated woman, right? Like a Jillian Anderson or a Janine Garofalo, you know, with these big dreamy eyes and like pouty lips and they're smart and sarcastic, you know? Right. So I dug her vibe. I remember watching her like on talk shows, like Real Time with Bill Maher. You know, I enjoyed her presence there. I was like, man, she's really smart. Like, I like that she's like standing up for her opinions, even though they might not be popular. So I dug her and she's fine in this. I mean... It just feels like she's being herself. Like, I couldn't remember her name in the movie. Her name is Marcy Tizard, like lizard, but with a T. You'd think, like, that would be really memorable, but I just thought of her as Janine the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to escape the the presence that she has. Janine Garofalo, she is herself, like you said. But I was surprised, you know, she is cynical. She's very smart and quick-witted, of course, but I was surprised to see that she's pretty funny and she's really good with slapstick humor in this. So she has some fun moments where she's fish out of water. She's in the small little hotel room and, you know, bumps her head or falls into the bed and, you know, sinks down into the mattress that's just, you know, giving way under her weight and bumps her head on the slanted angle of the roof and that kind of thing. So there's some fun slapstick stuff that I wasn't expecting from her in this. So that was cool to see. She has a fall a little over halfway into this movie that's really unexpected that she does amazing in where she just goes whoop just out of the blue trips and falls off some rocks and then she has to get a piggyback ride and she yeah she was great at that man i didn't realize she could do pratt falls that well i think that was the biggest revelation for this because that for sure janine persona which you either love or hate which i i love it but i didn't know that she could fall down and it was funny. So she did a great job with that. Yes, she's not quite as stoic in this movie. They, You get to see, uh, I guess, some vulnerability. <laughs> How do you say that? <laughs> Just like my voice and my speaking. But here we have in, in that moment, in this uh, slapsticky moment where she comes to the small town of Balanagra and has to find some sort of room because all the rooms are taken because of the big matchma- matchmaker festival, right? So she's tucked away in a bijou. It's described as a bijou room. Uh, it's basically looks like the attic with like a small water closet. This is our meet cute where she discovers the main interest. Just He's just chilling in her hotel room bathtub with his dog. <laughs> what did you make of this scene? Because... Again, a lot of this was, some of this humor was fun and it worked, but then other times I was just like, okay, that was kind of random. And uh, as my wife said, this wasn't a meet cute. She found it to be a meet ew because <laughs> this guy, was his name? David O'Hara. He plays Sean in the movie. He's basically a journalist who's left Dublin and gone back to the small town um, because he's just basically given up and he's settling uh, back in his hometown. But did you find him to be the most unattractive man <laughs> in the lead role of a romantic comedy possibly? Because <laughs> he looks like, you know what he looks like? He looks like kind of like a knockoff Colin Firth that stayed in a test tube too long. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a weird description, but I don't know. It kind of fits right when we see him. He basically is in a test tube. Yeah. He's kind of got that watery, fishy look. Like, I don't know. He just looks like <laughs> melted or something. 
Yeah, you kind of just reinforced an opinion I didn't realize that I had until now, which is a lot of things in this movie, right when they happen, they're kind of off-putting, right? Like, the movie starts, and then you're like, wait, what's going on? Why is she going to Ireland? That's weird. And then they show this guy that later, I think, becomes pretty charming. But right when they show him to you, he kind of sexually harasses her because she's like, what are you doing in my bathtub? And he's like, you want to join me? Right. He's like immediately a douche. I had a hard time liking his character for a long time. And I felt like as they try to transition him into, you know, more romantic and and lovey-dovey, I just just had problems with that because like, oh, that's kind of sudden. You know, all, all all the time in romantic comedies, you do have this kind of sudden shift into the the romance. At first, they hate each other, and then they kind of build it up to them loving each other. But I don't know. He he was immediately a douche to her, and yeah, like you said, kind of sexually harassed her. So I, was, I had a really hard time liking him for a while. But I guess I kind of eventually came around because he does do some charming stuff later. Yeah, and something about him too. Maybe this really goes with the whole movie, and I guess I can kind of skip to this in a way. So I did start liking his character. It didn't take too long. I think that David O'Hare is a pretty charming actor. So his charm kind of takes over and he kind of, you kind of see him as an outgrowth of the setting. You know, the guy that flew out of the bus and broke his leg is his brother that he's always fighting with. And everyone in this film, everyone that lives in this town is kind of like family by proximity. But their actual romance this movie really in the marketing like if, on the back of the dvd case is trying to tell you like this is a romantic comedy for people who hate romantic comedies and these two hate romance do you think they'll ever get together they get together pretty quickly and i was right. kind of like whoa wait you're together now like what what just happened like you hated each other and now you're together i mean i know this is a movie and that's what happens but still like it just felt a little quick no, I agree. I thought it was really quick. I wasn't quite sold on their romance uh, when they first get there. Uh, so basically, he's her chauffeur at one point. He ferries her across to the Aran Islands and takes her on this little trip to meet a genealogist because she's trying to track down the senator's ancestors, right? And they meet this crazy old man who just starts throwing rocks at him, which was pretty hilarious. But (laughs) after that, it's just like a short scene where they talk to him and they realize the matchmaker was in on it the whole time. You know, he's just kind of set him up to have this little adventure together. And then they're kind of off gallivanting in the Irish countryside. And, you know, she's resisting him at first and he's trying to kiss her but she pulls away but then she trips and falls and they're you know riding piggyback together and everything i don't know it was just like it just felt really weird and rushed yeah i didn't i wasn't sold by it at all though i did enjoy where they go into this bar because they're on they're on the Aran islands at this point so they're off the mainland because the matchmaker duped him he said that he told Janine that David O'Hara would have to give her a ride to the island and didn't mention that there's a ferry that goes to the island. But I love when they come into this bar and she's all giggling on his back and then she's like, down boy. And then she gets off and the guy at the bar, it just reminded me of my dad making small talk so much because he just looks up at, at David O'Hara and says, she looks like a heavy carry. <laughs> <laughs> to which David O'Hare is like, no, no. And I don't think he means like she looks like she weighs a lot. It just it's like she looks like a lot. I don't know. It was like more metaphysical than like her actual weight. Oh, it's a deeper level there. Just yeah. like a bartender, you know, would have those deeper layers, especially in Ireland. Right. Because he's 
they they're drinking people right because we see a lot of drinking in this movie (laughs) so many pints was this stereotypical at all for the irish or do you feel like it portrayed the irish in a a positive light or a, a true light authentic light well the director is like russian right mark jump let's see no he's australian I he's lied. hungarian he's hungarian <laughs> no he's not irish so rob kerr jonathan rob kerr one of our patrons one of my best friends i went to see him in germany and he told me he made sure to tell me you know at this part in germany they drink way more per person than they do in ireland so mm. i i think that's probably like somewhat of a stereotype it's just you know like guinness is from there and jameson is from there and it's a part of the pub is more like a part of the culture right for it's sure. like the the meeting place the gathering ground for people so uh i mean of course this movie definitely leans into a lot of irish stereotypes a whole lot but i don't think it's like mean-spirited ever about him and i don't think right. it like just completely rest on its laurels there so Eh, I don't know. I think it's a wash, Jordan. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a pass because, like you said, there it never does feel mean spirited. And I have seen uh, just the few reviews and you know online content you can find for this movie on the internet. I've seen some fun little reviews from people in Ireland that you know they watch this movie every year and it's a family favorite and uh, they really enjoy it. So I guess take that for what it's worth, right? They weren't offended. Those those three people had a good time watching it so it must be okay but what did you think of the matchmaking aspect of the movie itself because i wasn't quite sure why again why she was there in the beginning until they spelled it out and why there was a matchmaking festival like how that was important to her trying to get this senator more votes in boston (laughs) and so it just felt kind of convoluted and just random things thrown together because, hey, she's in Ireland and uh, we need we need a love story for this young lass. Well, watching it the second time, that stuff feels a lot more natural in a way because she's only going to this town to, to find these records that show whatever this politician's family is. But when she gets there, coincidentally there's this matchmaking thing going on. So you could say it's fate. You could say like in all this matchmaking, it's serendipitous and it's destiny that these couples come together by the hand of the matchmaker. Like there's a little magic behind it. So it's magic, Jordan. Magic of the Irish. (laughs) It's a lot easier to take that stuff. For sure watching it again. leprechaun was behind it all maybe it was the leprechaun unseen <laughs> he's playing his flute somewhere on the rocks <laughs> he's just farming more fly girls basically that's right yes yeah because the matchmaker at one point who i said should be played by warwick davis at one point he sends her a videotape at the end of the movie and is basically like hey i could use your help like bring in some young strapping americans or some young American lasses over to Balanagra and I could hook those people up, you know, so we could work together. So yeah, maybe all along it was farming the fly girls, that dastardly Dermot, <laughs> the old matchmaker in town. 
<laughs> and oh, we should mention he's got a rival lady matchmaker. You know, he's out for blood. They they hate each other. But of course, it's the '90s, so we have to have a bet, right? So she bets him that he can't get Garofalo and David O'Hara together. You know, by the end of the festival or whatever. So there you go. You have your '90s bet, and it's on for like a hundred pounds or whatever. <laughs> I did like that even though there's a bet, neither one of the the romantic partners are in on the bet. So that made it a lot better. It's not some she's all that stuff, you know. It's not she's all that, for sure. Yeah, that's a good point. They're not in on it. They just kind of are brought together by the matchmaker against their, uh, you know, against their will, basically. But they fall (laughs) for each other uh, randomly in the Irish countryside and in the pub. In the pub side? Is is that a thing? The pub side? (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. So there are two things in this movie that I think don't quite work. One of them is just like we said, how quickly the romance comes together. But the second one is, so the matchmaker, again, I mean, we are full spoilers on this show. So that is what it is. And I'm going to spoil this. The matchmaker dies. The namesake of this movie dies about yes. a little over three quarters into the film, right? Well, everyone is devastated. I mean, like, crying, nearly inconsolable, like, everyone is at his funeral, Janine's at his funeral, where you kind of like, this feels like a little much. Like, did everyone have this deep of a connection? Like, did Janine Garofalo have this deep of a connection with him? Or, like, David O'Hara's character, when he finds his, because he discovers the dead body, did it sound, like, when I had the headphones on, the first time I saw it, I thought he said dead? But the second time watching it, I was like, did he say Dad? Was the matchmaker his dad? Does everyone (laughs) view the matchmaker as the dad? I feel like this movie feels a little incomplete. Like, I feel like there's some colors that should have been filled in that just weren't that would maybe make this work better. I don't know. What did you think about that? I felt like the matchmaker dying at the end was just kind of random. They could have done without it, basically, because you have a shot where he's just like out on his estate And all of a sudden he just grabs his heart and he's got to make it all the way back inside. And he sees all, you know, this room filled with all his matches, basically. And then David O'Hara comes later and discovers him dead. It just felt kind of out of place and random. So and they didn't really build up to it. Like, you know, he wasn't like, oh, you know, my health is failing and I've got to finish this one last match, you know, for my legacy or whatever. (laughs) He doesn't really conspicuously cough at any point before this happens. Right, which maybe that would have helped. Maybe some build-up or some foreshadowing or something, because it did just feel like out of the blue. I'm not sure what it adds, to be honest. I don't know if anything that happens in the movie after that would not have happened if he would have still been alive. I don't know. I guess some touches of sadness and sorrow amidst all the kind of wacky outrageousness of the the 90s rom-com side characters like trying to kill themselves in tanning beds or breaking their legs and driving down the street in their car with their cast leg hanging out the window i thought that was pretty great you know you have the classic (laughs) drive to the airport at the end where both brothers have now broken their legs after one uh, by david o'hara got hit by a car fighting his younger brother breaks his leg and i love how the the younger brother's just laughing <laughs> like ha, ha, ha. <laughs> now now you broke your leg <laughs> i love that laugh he does it's such yeah. an evil brother laugh <laughs> oh yeah it's a to- total evil brother but he ends up helping drive him to the airport you know the classic dash to the airport to catch the girl but you know in, in this case he misses her and she's back off to boston 
before we go back to Boston, I guess we should talk about the senator and how he visits this small town in Ireland to, again, try and connect with his ancestors, try and figure out what Janine can give him so far. And I love, love, love the cottage scene. So they basically decide she can't find any of his ancestors. They didn't come here. So they're going to fake it and just drum up some people within the town to pretend to be the McGlories. So the next morning he visits this small little cottage where they're filming. And I believe it's the crazy one of the characters is the crazy old man who threw rocks at at them it in is. the beginning, that is right? Correct. Yes. Yes. And you have the matchmaker introducing them all like, oh, don't worry about old Nedry here. If he falls asleep, that's just the old narcolepsy. And then you've got like the crazy old man and like the little boy who brings him the shit bucket. And he's like, oh, that's not full. (laughs) He finds his teeth in the shit. And then the Nedry character or whatever his name was just collapses on the table, like falls asleep. All that was just gold. I thought that was hilarious. I'm with you. I I love that scene too. I thought that was really good. And I like the kind of the way they poke fun of the politician. And the only thing is like, I don't feel like his characterization is consistent because at some points he's just like a complete dummy, right? Like there's a a point where he's in the limo with Dennis Leary and Dennis Leary, his phone is ringing and the Senator pulls out his own phone and keeps trying to answer it, even though it's obviously not the one that's ringing. Right. Like he's kind of a dodo, but then there's other scenes where like they're in the limo and they see people and he's saying through the window, like when I'm elected, I'll kill you all. Like he's joking around like that. I'm like, I I didn't think you were smart enough to do that a minute ago. Right. Right. And then of course you have when he's in Ireland, you know, at first he's like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to fake this and we're going to make this look real. But then like a second later after it all falls apart and he's fussing at Janine. She gives him the the big speech and she's like, you know what? I, you know, thought whatever she says, I don't know. Like I trusted you or, you know, I'm, I'm over this. I'm, I quit. And, you know, then the next second he's like all sorry and sincere and apologetic. And she, she basically takes him back and decides she'll keep working for him until the end of the election. So I agree. His character was just kind of all over the place, especially at the end where, you know, we've got the matchmaker, we've got the senator in town. So, and I, I kind of thought this in the middle of the movie, like, oh, they're going to set the senator up. Like, they're going to matchmake him, right? So, we discover that David O'Hara, the Sean character, he has a wife, Mora, who is estranged. They're separated, but, you know, the discovery of her in his house when Janine and him have the, you know, little tryst and they have a a great night together they go back to his house and they discover her she kind of busts all that up and janine just kind of runs off and is very disappointed but later we have the matchmaker the lady matchmaker after i guess this is after the guy matchmaker died she's then trying to set up the senator while he's there to help improve i guess his image and sets him up with mora who they discover was originally a Kennedy before she was married. So he's after that, you know, the Kennedy persona, right? To get the good old Irish Catholic vote. But what did you make of this? This is so random to me and Karis as we were watching it. Like she ends up flying back to Boston after having met this guy and talked to him for like 20 minutes while they're filming. 
and basically decides to leave everything in Ireland and join him and become his wife on the campaign trail. I don't know. For some reason, that didn't bother me. I was more bothered by the fact that they needed to drum up some drama between Garofalo and David O'Hara. So they just bring back this ex-wife character and have this sort of Shakespearean comedy of errors where they're actually separated and they're about to get a divorce, but it looks like they're still romantic. So Janine gets mad at David O'Hara and then they break up, but then she finds out they really are divorced and then they get back together. And that kind of bugged me more than really the thing that you're saying, which is absurd and should actually bother me the most. But it does kind of fit at the same time because we talk about all these other absurd things happening in this movie. So that's almost like a background thing happening where you're just like, oh, that's really weird and absurd, but kind of funny that this yeah. Mora character would just leave her life and marry the senator because, I don't know, maybe she a gold digger. Who knows? No, actually, you're right. You know what? The more I think about it, the more I really think, and I'll give my score for the movie now to kind of contextualize what I'm saying, I actually would give this a 7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot. I really feel like the details in this movie are great. Like, they are so enjoyable, which is ironic since I said the pan and scan version is the version to watch. I think the details in this movie are perfect. The setting, the soundtrack, just the way that the music moves things from scene to scene, the songs that they selected... And all of that stuff is great, but then the major strokes, like the romance and other things in the storyline, it's almost like they were like, eh, let's focus on the details more. That stuff just is what it is. It's a romantic comedy, so we'll just do that (laughs) stuff that they do. And then we'll have all this other stuff that sets us apart. And the stuff that sets it apart, I enjoyed a lot. But the other stuff, I I could take it or leave it. Yeah, I I pretty much agree with you 100%. Like, I do really enjoy those little details, the absurdity, all the wacky side characters. But yeah, the the major strokes are just kind of bland and formulaic and expected. But I don't know, it gets the job done in the end. uh, We go back to Boston and we discover that he's been reelected, you know, by it's a slim victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. Right. And I, I do enjoy that Dennis, o, Dennis O'Leary, I'm making him <laughs> more Irish. <laughs> and he's already pretty Irish. He's so. already pretty Irish. Uh, Dennis Leary gets his comeuppance. You know, he's just been kind of this, uh, weaselly backstabber the whole movie. He's just kind of out for, you know, he, he'll stop at nothing to win. Basically. He's definitely a moral, but uh, we discover, well, not really discover, but um, all right, let me go back. So I do enjoy the Dennis Leary. Well, now we're going to lose my O'Leary comment. I've got to just fake it now, right? Anyway. <laughs> That's true. You do have to take it. You have to take all of it. It's all staying in. Just, it's, it's all, all staying, staying in. in. I'm the evil leprechaun that cuts nothing when I edit the episodes. <laughs> I make a Jordan and Courtney look like a jackass. <laughs> No, please cut some of that. But yes, at the press conference, we see that he still has his mic on after he basically uh, interrupts Janine Garofalo as he's trying as she's trying to answer a reporter, and she walks off and is about to leave. And he chases after her, and he still has his mic on, where everybody can hear him talk about how dumb the senator is and how he doesn't have an original thought in his mind. So Janine. Ask him to repeat all that because, oh, look, you have something on your tie. It's your mic, and everybody just heard how much of a douche you are. So he uh, he gets his comeuppance, and I did enjoy that. And, you know, of course, expected, and we have the expected scene where Sean flies all the way from Ireland to Boston to reunite with Janine, and they 
they kiss. Oh, we've got the the kiss at the very end of the movie, Nick. And you know what I was hoping for? Just that roll credits, you know, because it is the final shot. She, he gets up on the stage and he sings this terrible song that, you know, he has a terrible singing voice. He, he tried to win the contest earlier at the pub where she was judging who the best singer was. And we see how terrible he is. Well, he does it again here. So a nice little, you know, nod back to something that happened earlier. But he jumps up on the stage. He's singing. She hears him. They embrace. They kiss. And then that's the end of the movie. We'll go to black and roll credits. But, you know, you know, I'm a fan of the freeze frame roll credits over the last image. They didn't do that. So that's a point against it. But I did enjoy the movie. I, I thought it was very entertaining. I don't think I was ever checking my watch to see when this thing was over. So I agree with a lot of what you said. It's got some problems in the major strokes, but really fun, enjoyable details all throughout. So I'd give this a, yeah, I'd say three and a half out of five. So I'm right there with you. I can watch it again right now. I mean, it, it's a very enjoyable movie for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, I didn't rewatch it a second time. We other than to see the opening with the closed captions to try and figure out what the hell was happening. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it helped a little bit as far as understanding some of the, the humor and what was being said in that office scene. But uh, yeah, the definitely the sweet spot of this movie is that that middle section where they're in Ireland and you get to meet all the charming characters there in Bella Negra. Certain things are better on second viewing, too, like that Dennis Leary scene where he gets his comeuppance. First time I watched it, I was kind of like, is this really necessary? Like, we already know the guy's a jerk. He's basically admitted, like, yes, I'm a jerk. Like, it is what it is. Is this really needed? It's kind of tropey. But then I did notice the second time that I think David O'Hara set him up and put the microphone on his lapel, like, just for kicks. Like, Uh-oh. just to be wacky and be a prankster. So then I was like, ah, now this fits. Yes. Maybe now I did not notice that. That's interesting. That's why I, I think something that Neil and Jess might like about this movie is the more you watch it, the more it does reveal a little more of itself, right? It does reveal a little more every single time. So maybe they've watched this so many times, they've completely cracked the code. That's awesome. The matchmaker code. <laughs> <laughs> And probably cracked the the skinny little DVD <laughs> in the process. Oh, yes. man. Yeah, but yeah, it definitely deserves a watch. So if you haven't seen The Matchmaker, which I assume a lot of our listeners might not have, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. So like we said, Irish romantic comedy starring Janine Garofalo. If that's your thing, go for it. If not, you know, have a shot of Jameson. Or watch Leprechaun in the Hood. He's up to no good. <laughs> can do no good oh okay he's incapable of doing he's good. incapable of doing good he just only murders people i mean he tries so hard to be good but there's <laughs> only blood on his hands in the end it's not even a moral issue if you're not capable of doing something then you're not culpable so that's right like just right. to add some depth there that i didn't even realize was there wow amazing Ooh. maybe that movie will reveal more depth with more frequent watches I, i'm not so sure about that <laughs> and i'd seen it three or four times before we covered it but every single time it was extremely late at night and i was with other people and we were in a, a goofy state so yeah that's definitely the only way to do it all right well movie connection time do you have a way to connect our previous movie which was barbed wire with Pamela Anderson, to this movie, Matchmaker. 
Bonus points if you can throw in Lep in the hood. <laughs> if I don't think I can. I don't know. Let's see. So my connection is kind of lame, but again, one of those really weird things, right? So the last movie we talked about was Barbed Wire. It's a movie about Pam Anderson's boobs, and <laughs> it's horrible. It's a really terrible movie. It was distributed by Gramercy Pictures. They're not around anymore. They distributed movies in the 90s and in the early 2000s, all kinds of different films. If you go and look at their Wikipedia page, it's kind of nuts. But they also distributed The Matchmaker, Jordan. Isn't that weird? It's like, hey, you, really weird. you didn't like Pam Anderson's boobs? Hey, check out Janine Garofalo in Ireland. We got that, too. We got all of it. Right. You have one movie where the main female character is expressing herself via no clothes and the other where she's covered in multiple layers of jackets no boobs to be seen lots of jackets so, all the time all the time would you say they're a well-rounded uh distribution <laughs> distribution company oh good lord yes Ooh, bringing it back <laughs> yeah i think we escaped the barbed wire territory we're we're slowly sinking back in no we jordan no yeah. Get away from that quicksand. Get, get right. out now. Get, get out now. Uh, I do think it's ridiculous that in the late 90s, they were like, Janine Garofalo, she's the new kind of lead. She's not attractive at all. Look at how hideous she is. And really, like, I mean, she's a, she's a good-looking woman. Like, that's kind of stupid. In the 90s especially, they're like, oh, you, and you go back to she's all that, where it's like, oh, you want to see a, a an unattractive, ugly, hideous woman? Let's take a perfectly normal, beautiful-looking woman and just put some glasses on her or make her smart, maybe. And now she's not so attractive, right? That's basically the 90s staple of unattractive woman. She's not Pamela Anderson, and she doesn't have giant breasts. Therefore, unattractive. You'd avoid her like a dead dog on the side of the highway, wouldn't you? And really, you, you would not. You would be quite fortunate. To be in the same room as the people that they're positing in this fashion. Right. Yes. Uh, I think we mentioned her her teeth at one point, Janine Garofalo, but she has a very charming, very sparkling, uh, beautiful smile. So beneath all that cynicism, she's got the just the chompers of a of a beautiful woman. <laughs> you got the chompers of a beaut, me lassie. You're a regular charmer, buddy. I was going to say the chompers of a basset hound, but that sounded like a not a compliment. So just holy <laughs> hell, do do not use that. If Karis dies and you got to get back out there, don't use that line. Don't you use got that the chompers of a basset hound, Melassi. <laughs> Ooh, Jordan. Yeah. yeah. So Mark Joff or Joffy, however you say his name, the director of this movie from Australia, I think he was really enamored with her too. Like half of the shots in this film are Janine Garofalo reaction shots. Would you agree? Yeah, and most of those are the big old smile, all the teeth. That's right. And it's it's not a bad smile. I think uh, Roger Ebert even commented on her smile in his review, and he was seemed pretty positive on this movie. There we go. We're completely objectifying you now, Gene Garofalo, just like you wanted. That's right. We've gone from boobs to smiles. That's right. <laughs> We're a smile-focused podcast. Right. She is it's... smiling on the poster of the movie, and we're kidding. Obviously, we're kidding. Right, right. right. <clears throat> if boobs aren't your thing, then maybe teeth are. The 90s has it all. Let me bring us on over to the Oracle of Bacon for my movie connection, where we're connecting Pamela Anderson to Janine Garofalo, the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon style. So Janine Garofalo was in Reality Bites with Ben Stiller, who was in Polly Shore is Dead, 
with Pamela Anderson. So uh, I did this last time too, and apparently you can pretty much connect anybody with Pamela Anderson via Polly Shore is dead in some way. I'm not seeing that movie, and I don't believe Polly Shore really is dead, and I'm not quite sure what the movie is about. But I know that Pamela Anderson is in it. We are finding that Holly Shore's dead cures all ills. It connects all films. It does. Just like Mars Attacks. But will it help you win in the trivia battle? Hold it! Pop quiz, hot shot! I don't think so, but let's do it. <laughs> oh, so Jordan, my questions, you know, you said something a few episodes ago. Why don't you ask me some questions that, like, you actually know? And I do know most of my questions, Jordan. But I asked you questions this time that, like, I really know the answers to. And I went by theme. These are all movies I grew up watching and enjoyed or watched in college, uh, with the exception of the last one, that are either set in Ireland or involve Irish characters or Irish-American characters. So I feel like this is really easy, but it might destroy you. I don't know. Okay, okay. So you went with sort of a location theme as far as Ireland goes, right? Based on our match made in heaven uh, double feature. That's right. So my questions tonight, once again, being drawn from the Fred Rillard's magnificent movie trivia book, are all based on location, but not just Ireland, my friend, because he's got a section in this book called Location, Location, Locations. And so these are all questions about places and movies. I stopped begrudging you asking me questions from this book like a year ago, but I'm still <laughs> baffled as to how you haven't asked me all of the questions in this book yet. <laughs> I'm trying my best not to repeat myself. Because he's dead. Fred Willard died. So I know he's not like yep. writing new questions every few weeks so that you can have more. Like this book just must have a trillion questions. Didn't we have a bit where we said that's exactly what was happening? Like his ghost was coming back just to... <laughs> supply me with more trivia questions to lose that trivia with that'd be a, such a sad ghost he's just so like it's like oh jordan you lost again buddy <laughs> i keep coming back from the dead to help you out and to no avail i'm oh. letting poor fred willard down <laughs> and, and jordan 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 that bass and hound smile line don't ever use that jordan it won't work I feel like he would tell me to use it. I don't know. Yeah, he probably would. He probably would. All right. Uh, ask me a question. What happened? All right. So first question, which movie takes place in Miami's South Beach? Is it A, Cocoon, B, The Birdcage, C, Body Heat, or D, Flipper? Oh, man. These are all like really beachy, right? Uh, I guess, I guess that's the point. I'm just going to guess, uh, and I've seen all of these, but I'm just going to guess uh, The Birdcage. You got it. In all this right. Mike Nichols-directed comedy, Robin Williams plays the owner of a drag cabaret in which his domestic partner regularly appears as the featured performer, Seth Starina? Starina? Yeah, that's right. And it's set in the good old Miami South Beach. Yeah, I remember enjoying that movie a lot. But also, I have a note that I didn't mention. When we were talking about the credits for The Matchmaker, and you were saying how you were disappointed that the credits don't roll up over the kiss. Yeah. What did you think, though, about how they were diagonal? There are diagonal oh, credits in this movie. Oh, I totally forgot that. 
And I definitely wanted to talk about that because that was the jacked up, most jacked up credits I've ever seen. <laughs> it just fit perfectly with like the postage stamp size of the screen. And then, I don't know, just all like all the weird absurdities and the 90s-ness of this movie. But yeah, the, the credits start to roll diagonally, like from the bottom right to the top left. And it's it's just, yeah, it's just the weirdest credits that I've ever seen. I guess maybe that's why they didn't roll the credits like over their faces because it would just be all these words diagonally going across them. I don't know. Yes, very strange credits. Yes. But you know what? It does kind of set this movie apart in other ways. So maybe that's a plus. There you go. All right. You ready for my first question? Let's do it. Which of these actors starred in 1959's Darby O'Gill and the Little People? Was it A, Sean Connery, B, Richard Harris, C, Richard Burton, D, Garrett Houlihan? Hmm, I have no idea. Let me guess, Richard Harris. No! Buddy, it was Sean Connery. Even though he's Scottish, he played an Irishman. So I used to always rent... The 1942 Jungle Book starring Sabu. That was like one of my favorite movies when I was a little kid. I I, I didn't rent it. I checked it out from the library in New mm-hmm. Roads, Louisiana. And one day someone accidentally put the VHS for Darby O'Gill and the Little People in the case. And I remember <laughs> watching it, I don't know, I was seven or eight. And I loved it so much. I've never I, seen I, that. It's probably very offensive. I've heard like I, Irish people say that it's a really stereotypical offensive movie and Sean Connery's not even Irish. But man, right. when I was a kid, I was like eating it up. There's this part where the Grim Reaper comes and looks so <laughs> badass at the end. And my mom walked in thinking I was watching The Jungle Book and she was like, what are you watching? I was like, it's Darby O'Gill and the Little People. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I've never seen that. Mm-hmm. All right. So next question for me. I hear you flipping. Yeah, I'm flipping. All right. Let's see. Okay, here we go. Which epic film was shot in Morocco, Italy, and England? Was it A, The Last Emperor? B, Saving Private Ryan? C, Gladiator? Or D, Braveheart? So I know Gladiator was filmed in Spain, so I'll cross that off. I'm going to guess The Last Emperor. Well, buddy, sorry. It was actually Gladiator. What? Yeah. That's it. I'm researching this question right now. Let me tell you what Fred has to say. Tell me what Fred says. The opening battle scenes in this Ridley Scott film were shot in the Bourne Woods of Surrey, England. When Scott learned that the area had been slated for deforestation, he offered to burn it to the ground during filming, and the Royal Forestry Commission gladly accepted. (laughs) Gladiator won five Oscars. (laughs) So yeah, shot in England... Italy and Morocco, apparently. Okay, so I'm reading this on the Wikipedia page, but I swear I watched the director's commentary with Ridley Scott on this movie, and he was talking about Spain all the time. Damn it, Ridley Scott. Damn it. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) He threw threw you off there. It's okay. It's all right. Who composed the score to 1992's Far and Away? Was it A, John Williams, B, Jerry Goldsmith, C, James Horner? Or D, Gary McBride? Uh, I'm just going to guess B. Wrong. It was actually John Williams in a non-Steven Spielberg score. It's a really great score. I haven't seen that movie since Grand Isle in like 1994, man. But I really enjoyed it then. I don't know. Maybe it sucks. that We're going to have to cover that one day. It's got Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. They're Irish immigrants. So it starts in Ireland, and then you get to America and you get to the uh, to Oklahoma and like the land rush, and it's uh I don't know I liked it whenever I was 
12 or 13 years old. Maybe I think it'd suck now. I don't know. We'll cover it one day. Yeah, I definitely have seen the cover for this one over the years, but never seen the movie. Which Boston-based movie won an Oscar for Best Picture? Was it A, Mystic River, B, The Departed, C, The Verdict, or D, Goodwill Hunting? An Oscar for Best Picture, because I know you love the Oscars. You're big on the Oscar trivia, I hate the freaking Oscars. (laughs) How about Mystic River, then? That's Okay, that's your answer? Yeah. Well, uh, you are wrong, because it was The Departed. The Departed won a Best Picture Oscar? Yeah, it was kind of a gimme. They just kind of gave it to Scorsese, I feel like, because they felt like they owed it to him. But a little bit of a a reach there, because not the best Scorsese. There are four or five of his movies from before that that I think are masterpieces. But, I mean, like, the last 90 seconds of that movie feels like you're watching a meme. It's ridiculous. And then the the ending metaphor with the rat is, like, the most on-the-nose thing I've ever seen. So... Right. The Oscars are stupid. Sorry, everyone who likes the Oscars, but that's dumb. It earned a total of four Oscars, including Best Director, Scorsese's first. Man, yeah, that's that's definitely a gimme. Like, ah, oh, we owe you. Come on. You might not make another film, but he's made, like, what, like 16 since then? So, <laughs> whatever. You know what? I don't give a crap. All it is to me now is a question that I missed in trivia. So that movie <laughs> sucks. You suck, Scorsese. (laughs) (laughs) All right, my next question. Who is the female lead in the Harrison Ford Brad Pitt starring The Devil's Own from 1997? Was it A, Maureen O'Hara, B, Natasha Henstridge, C, Margaret Collin, or D, Rebecca De Mornay? Uh, Was it D, Rebecca? (laughs) (laughs) It was actually Margaret Collin who you Ah. see in a lot of movies from this time period, but I don't really remember seeing her much after this. And The Devil's Own is one that I've toyed about saying, like, one year for St. Patrick's Day, we should probably do that one. I feel Mm. like that's one of those movies where it's, like, just okay. But it's got Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt in it. Yeah. I rented it, at like, right after it came out at Blockbuster, and I watched it three or four times, and I've never watched it again. So I'm not even really familiar with that. I, I don't feel like I've even heard of that. Next question. Which film's outdoor scenes were shot on the Hawaiian Islands? A, King Kong from 2005. B, Apocalypse Now. C, Out of Africa. Or D, Jurassic Park. Uh, D, Jurassic Park. Yeah, I figured you'd get that one. Yeah, you know I watch those, those <laughs> yeah. special features. On All 30,000 hours of the special <laughs> features. That's right. Finally, the damn DVD special features served me well, this trivia battle. Ridley Scott. <laughs> I asked you a question, now you miss it, then you lose. Or wait, do I just win because you haven't even gotten one right? Yeah, you've gotten two. It's the best two out of three. I've gotten none right, so <laughs> I feel like you, sh- you should just ask me another question and I'll, I'll miss it and then you'll win. Yes, no matter what, whether you get this right or get this wrong, I still win because I've gotten two. But let's ask it anyway. All right. Here's one from when I was in college that I enjoyed a lot. And again, I I think I've only seen it once since then. But who wrote and directed 2002's In America? Was it A, Jim Sheridan, B, Cillian Murphy, C, Michael Cadden-Jones, or D, Andrew Davis? Was it Jim Sheridan? You got one right, Jordan. Nice what? At, le- at least I redeemed myself to some <laughs> point, even though I lost. 
I got a question right. That's like a step in the right direction. So <laughs> not completely demoralized. No, 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 no. Have you seen that film? I have not. I'm not. So I did a double feature of Lost in Translation and In America back at the old Segan Village Theater whenever they were on their last legs and they were showing kind of smaller, artier films. And that was one of the best double features I've ever done. I really enjoyed both those movies a lot. Lost in Translation is still my favorite movie from the aughts. I haven't seen In America in a long time, but I imagine even if I didn't think it was incredible, I'd still enjoy it a lot. It's good stuff. Sweet, sweet. At the, I can't remember if I've seen that or not. I have to go look it up. But good stuff. You've won the trivia battle once again. So what am I going to be punished with next? Well, Jordan, first of all, what are you not going to be punished with in the next episode? Because really, we've talked about this movie before as a punishment. And I was like, I, I don't want to talk bad about Estelle Getty because I love her so much, right? From Golden Girls. Everyone mm-hmm. knows Estelle Getty from that show. But she was also in a buddy cop movie. And have we done a Stallone yet? Yes, we did Demolition Man. Yes. Is that our only Stallone? I think so. Well, it's about to be two because we're going to cover Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Not as the punishment, Jordan. As the main body. Of the episode, Jordan. Isn't that more of a punishment? We have to talk about it longer? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Because the punishment movie. And, you know, we've gotten some, why don't you do this movie as a main episode movie? But you know what? What would pair better with Stop or My Mom Will Shoot than (laughs) the 1997 Spice World, Jordan? (laughs) Lord. (laughs) So this is just, like, I hate Jordan. I want him to quit this show. <laughs> Let's make him watch two terrible movies <laughs> for this episode. I feel like it always goes beyond that. Like, how could I get Jordan off of planet Earth? <laughs> like, how would he just leave this entire planet? You know what, though? My, you told me earlier that uh, Spice World, you know, not to spoil, like, the authenticity of our show here, but you told me earlier that Spice World was going to be uh, the movie you would punish me with if I lost trivia, which, you know, inevitably made me lose trivia because I was fearing it so much. I just, I knew I would bomb. But anyway, I, I tell my wife, yeah, Nick's going to punish me with Spice World. And she said, is that that, that sci-fi movie? <laughs> And I said, wait, are you thinking of Dune? <laughs> and she, she, in some way or form, she was, or to to a degree, she was. So I thought that was pretty hilarious that Dune <laughs> and Spice World would be paired in that way. But apparently there was a meme uh, around the internets that said, oh, this new Dune movie looks amazing. And it's just stills from Spice World. <laughs> That's awesome. So that might be my favorite thing about Spice World so far. <laughs> So that's the the brilliance of it is. It's Spice World and then Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, which is just this ridiculous movie. Like, how do they even make this? The most famous thing about it is, of course, that Arnold Schwarzenegger tricked Stallone into starring in it by feigning <sighs> that he was interested in the script. And Stallone that's jumped awesome. on it really fast before Schwarzenegger would, and really Schwarzenegger deceived him. But the, the guy <laughs> that directed Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, just to kind of put a frame around what things were like in the nineties compared to now he directs that. And they're like, you know what? God, great job, buddy. You want to do the next bond movie? <laughs> and he directed tomorrow never dies five years later. You so, really went over the top with Stallone 
on stop or my mom will shoot. Oh, you like you like what I did there? Oh, why'd you point it out? I was just going to go, hey. Hey. Uh, you committed the mortal joke sin, Jordan. <laughs> what the, oh, you like what I did there? Yeah, you called attention to your own joke. That's kind of my thing, Nick, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> It fits what we're covering next. So. That's right. But they're like, oh, yeah, you, you, you did a great job on that movie. The action was really great. Yeah, here's a Bond movie. <laughs> Estelle Getty just looks great and, you know, dropping to her knees with a handgun and offing some criminals. That's right. This movie's going to be as good as a Basset Hound smile. <laughs> that should be the tagline of every movie. As good as a Basset Hound smile. It has the chompers of a Basset Hound smile. Just like Janine Garofalo's sweet, sweet self. Oh, man. Well, on that note, I feel like I have nothing left to say really about anything. Yeah, we can just go home now. So thank you guys for listening, for putting up with us. We appreciate you. If you want to support this show, check us out on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash filmshake. We've got bonus episodes there that you get. For subscribing you get other little behind the scenes perks so we'd love it if we could get some more patrons to support the show and as always leave us a review on apple podcasts or spotify wherever you get your podcast you can send us a feedback email at filmshakepodcast@gmail.com. love to hear from you guys any thoughts you have on our content so thanks again for listening we'll catch you next time for more film shake happy st patrick's day Cheers to Martin Glenn, cheers to Galway, Ireland, cheers to Dublin, Ireland, and take it easy. I come from the land of the Irish Spring. Dublin's the place where I learn my thing. From the Emerald Isle to your place in the hood. I'm the man of green, come to do no good. Left in the hood, come to do no good. Left in the hood, come to do no good. Blunt is dope, this place is hype. There's a lassie, she's just my type. I hate your resort so soon to money. Haven't been late so long, it's happy. I'm so bad, I'm good. I'll show you what to do, so lend an ear. Don't worry, little lassie, you've got nothing to fear. Sit with the lad who's lean and green, and let me show you why I'm a love machine. Come to do no good. I'm a wee green guy who's new to town. Show me what you do when you get down. I'll go up, you go down. We'll call to see your love agree. Left in the hood, come to do no good. Left in the hood, when we're bad, we're good. Cliffs of more to your front door. Better turn up the lights and pray some more. We're gonna party through the night until the door. Then you and I are gonna get it on. Left in the hood, come to do no good. Left in the hood, come to do no good.